0: Thank you for being here tonight. We honor the Lord through our worship as we sing, but we are reminded that worship is not limited to a song. It's a surrendered life, and it's actually a lifestyle that we live. So to sing these songs and to go out and live in a way that's not in accordance with God's word is to spit in the face of the Lord Jesus worship is not just a song it is how we live how you treat your brother how you go to work and act and believe how you speak to people so don't disconnect worship from the song with the lifestyle that's important to understand beautiful songs we shall be home that's an old I love that one one day I, I'm going to talk to you tonight about Psalm chapter 2 Um, We're kind of in between another book study. I did Psalm 1 as a standalone a few weeks ago as we were finishing the book of Philemon and we had our church conference. So I did Psalm 1, then we finished up Philemon last week, and then we're going to do Psalm 2 tonight. And then I don't know what we're going to do after that, but it'll be a book study, but we won't meet next week. Because we're following the midweek schedule it's spring break, so we're off. So that gives me a couple of weeks to figure this thing out. I appreciate the encouragement in the book of Philemon. Many of you have shared with me stories of how God has reconciled relationships based on the truth of his word. I got a call today from a man who said after 40 plus years, God answered my prayer. Because he put into practice what we talked about in here, 40 plus years. God's big. He can do it. So don't ever limit God. Um, it's important that we yield to him. So Psalm chapter 2, I want to talk to you with this subject and title in mind, On Top. On Top. Who is really sitting on top of the world? Uh, we, we have watched the news today. You have seen the continued devastation, the destruction, the rebellion, The pride, the justification in doing what someone is doing is wrong. There are so many things in this world as it unravels right before our eyes. Do you think God may be trying to get our attention? Do you think? I do. And I believe the inspired Word of God teaches us that this is no surprise. Because when you see things falling apart in this world, remember they're actually coming together according to God's Word. And so, Psalm chapter 2 is a psalm where King Jesus is on top. It's a messianic psalm. Uh, Many believe that David was the writer of this psalm. Many believe that maybe he wasn't. But it's termed a royal psalm. It has a lot of messianic interpretation that we'll talk about tonight. But it actually leaves us from David's imprint and his hands to that which is greater than David. The greater David is Jesus Christ. So we see in this Psalm chapter 2 that somebody's got to be on top of the world. Somebody's got to be in charge. So I want you to think of this as we open. When you think of the Lord says this, and I think it's 2 Chronicles sixteen nine. for the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. So when you think of the eyes of the Lord, uh, they go to and fro. Well, there's also somebody, other people going to and fro, and that's men and women on this earth. They're going to and fro. So God, God's eyes, all seeing and all knowing, he, his eyes go to and fro, and he's looking for someone to attach himself to. That's what that word means, to show himself strong, means to attach himself to. So his eyes are, he's looking, and, and he sees, he's sitting on top of everything, he's sovereign, he's in control. But at the same time, there's, man is going to and fro on the earth. The Bible talks about man tries to show his vain glory by going to and fro, looking for purpose, looking for meaning, looking for joy, uh, trying to find it in all the wrong places. But then there's somebody else going to and fro. In Job chapter 1, 6 and 7, the Lord asked uh, Satan, and he said, uh, where where are you going? And he said, "To, to, to and fro, to and fro. So God, his eyes go to and fro, man is going to and fro on the earth, and Satan is going to and fro. Do you think if man is going to and fro and Satan is going to and fro, there's a chance we'll meet up somewhere along the line? Sure there is. And, and, and when, when, when we meet up with the enemy, he doesn't want to wound you. He wants to destroy you. That's what he wants to do. But you got to remember the one who sits on top of the world the sovereign one, the one who we've put our faith and trust in. So, so we understand in this psalm that, that somebody's got to be on the top. And so the writer of Psalm chapter 2 talks about the one who's on top of the world, the one who is absolutely in control. And this is a psalm about a coronation of a king. And and God's going to install His king, and that's what He's going to talk about. And and a lot of people, when when a king gets installed, and they don't like that king, they protest. We 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 even see it now. You see signs. You see uh, signs of support for Ukraine. You see other signs. Uh, denouncing Russia and all that's going on. So anytime a king is installed, people have all kinds of opinions. And if you don't like what's happening, you protest. And so there's going to be a protest about God's king. But it was prophesied before the foundation of the world. So Psalm chapter 2, let's just take it verse by verse and go on through. Here's what the text says. Why do the nations rage? Now, first of all, this is not an explanation, this is an exclamation. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So let's look at this. Why do the nations rage? The word for rage in the Hebrew language means to make a lot of noise. To to make a lot of noise. So so the people, the nations, the people of the nations that are raging are people that don't want this king installed. They don't want King Jesus. And so the nations are raging and they're making a lot of noise to defeat God because they actually think they can take the one who's on top, off the top, and put him down. They think they can overthrow God. And, And we see that today with the nations, the, the nations are raging, and so they're making a lot of noise. And so what we have to do as people that have put our faith and trust in Jesus is we can't get caught up in all the noise. We got to focus on the one who's stable, the one who's on the top, the one who's in control, the one who's sovereign, the one who will make the playing field even one day, the one who is totally in charge. And so we shouldn't get concerned about all the chaotic stuff that's going on because the Bible says the nations have always raged from generation to generation, they have all always rage. People have always made a lot of noise about God, and they've always tried to overthrow God. They've tried to take out the Constitution, the moral laws of God, the laws and the commandments. They just want to rip it all out. We see that today. The nations are raging today, and the nations have always raged, but they make a lot of noise but that doesn't change the fact of who God is. He is stable. He is consistent. His character is even. So nothing can thwart the plans of God. So it's, an, it's kind of an exclamation here. Why do the nations rage? And watch this. Not only do the nations rage, but the people plot. So the people of these nations, they have a plan. They are plotting against God. They have a plan to overthrow God. The nations are represented by a lot of chaotic noise, but the people who belong to those nations have a plan to get rid of God. And we've seen that in in our own nation. People have a plan to get rid of God. They want to silence those of us who actually believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, in the virgin birth, who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, he was crucified, he was buried and resurrected on the third day, they actually are people that come against us like that. So these people have a plan. And the plan is to try to stop the army of God, the soldiers of God, the mission of God. But I can tell you something, it cannot happen. You cannot stop God. He is that powerful. And so the people, it's interesting, people are plotting today all around the world, and it says here in the text that it's a vain thing. You know what that means? To no avail. It's futile. <laughs> it, it, people, it's laughable, if you will. And so the people plot a vain thing. So we have the nations are raging. The people are plotting a plan against God. Now understand this. They've been trying to take God out for a long time. Do you remember Pharaoh? Do you remember uh, Herod? Do you, do you remember all these people? You know, Herod was going to get rid of all the, the male babies, and so he, he was going to try to wipe out just, just because he heard a rumor that there was an up-and-coming king. And so he he didn't want this up and coming king to be anywhere so he had a plan to just wipe out a whole generation of babies. But it was too late because God's plan was already unfolding right before the very eyes. And so we see here that people always have a plan. But here's the good news. It's too late. God's plan is already in fruition. It is already taking place. You and I are a masterpiece in God's plan. We are working out God's plan in and through our lives. So when the people are plotting in vain to take God out, we are yielding and surrendering to the plan of God in our lives on mission for God as soldiers, as ambassadors who are moving forward. And we're not plotting anything. We're just getting in on what God has already ordained before the foundation of the world. So this psalm is about someone who's on top. It says, the people plot a vain thing, and, and it actually means premeditated rebellion. See, there's rebellion, and then there's premeditated rebellion. When a parent tells a child to do something and the child says, No, I won't do that, there's no question who the parent is and who in the authority and who the child is. Um, planned rebellion is premeditated you may think of premeditated crime but premeditated is is just somebody who has a plan and who has transgressed across a line of demarcation that god said this is my holiness and premeditation means it really doesn't matter what your plan is i'm crossing over it anyway that's what the text is saying here So the people rage, that's a lot of noise, they plot, that's premeditated rebellion, not just rebellion, it's planned rebellion. It's stepping over the line where it says, do not hunt, do not fish, and stepping over the line anyway. You draw a circle around yourself, say, I've already made up my mind, I'm going over that line. That's premeditated rebellion. And that's what the people of the world who are not with God are doing. And it's futile, it's futile. And then here's what the text says, look at this. And the kings of the earth, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. So not only do the people in the, the the nations are raging, the people are plotting but the kings are setting themselves against God. So the idea of the word set here means to permanently, concretely set in premeditated rebellion that we don't want this new king that's coming in. We have rejected this new king. We, we, we want our, our king, we want to be the king of our own lives. And so the kings of the earth, they've made a deliberate decision to permanently set themselves against God. How foolish can you be? And then it says this, there's some partners that are involved in this. And the rulers take counsel together. We talked about counsel in uh, Psalm chapter 1. Don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Well, they're walking in the counsel of the ungodly, and their partnership is, you know what, the counsel that we want and receive and have already premeditated is that we all want God out of the picture. We all want the one who's on top, who's an installation is being made here. We want him out of the picture. Now look at what the text says. So it's not just rebellion. It's rebellion against God's king that he is installing here which is a picture of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying here. And so they counsel together, and here's what the text says, against the Lord, to stand opposed to the Lord. So it's against the Lord. That's the word Jehovah. That's Jehovah God, the God of the Jews, God himself, refers to himself as Jehovah God, God of the Jews. As we go into the end times and as we see things unfolding and actually unraveling, people take offense to the God of the Jews. And so we see it even today in our society. So they stand against the Lord whose plan is already unfolding before their very eyes, and they stand against the Lord, Jehovah, and they also stand against the anointed, it says, his anointed, which is the Messiah, which is Christ. So they stand against the person of God, the person of God, Jehovah God, and they also stand against his anointed. So you've got to get this picture here. People come against the person of God all the time the atheists, the agnostics. um, You can't turn on anything today without somebody not profaning the name of Jehovah God or our Savior Jesus Christ. It happens everywhere. It happens all the time. You see it on TV. You see it on radio. You see it all over the internet. And there's been an abuse and a profane power that is elevated today and people are standing against the Lord. They've always stood against the Lord. Now here's the beauty of it, all they have to do is turn to Him. That's all they have to do to find new life, to find hope, to find peace, to understand that He has a plan for their lives. But people actually stand against the Lord, nations stand against the Lord and against His anointed. And so that's what the text is saying here. Um, so it's kind of like drawing a circle around yourself. The nations, the people, the plans, they've all plotted. It's drawing a circle and making a decision in this circle. Before you ever step outside this circle, I've already made my decision. I'm against God and I'm against his anointed. So that's the picture that they're coming from. Now, this is a beautiful text as it unfolds um, because what happens here is they're against the person of the Lord, but even more importantly, they're against the precepts of the Lord. Look at verse 3. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. The laws and the commandments of God put restraints on people. People don't want restraints. They don't want God's laws. They don't want God's commandments. They didn't want them then. They don't want them now. So so God puts laws in place and commandments in place and a moral compass in place and a plumb line of truth in place so that there can be some restraint put in there. Now, people who are against God, Jehovah, and against his anointed Jesus, they don't want those restraints. They want to live in a freedom that says this, I don't want any restraints whatsoever on my life. Can I tell you this? God holdeth the reins right now, today. You've got to understand, he's sovereign. He holdeth the reins. If he takes his hands and just loosens the reins a little bit in this world, we're all done. He's so gracious He's sovereign. He's in control. And so when you think of a world without any restraint whatsoever, a world that is absolutely chaotic, God is holding the reins right now. And and those people that are standing against him say, we want freedom. We want to break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. We we don't want to be bound by whatever these laws and commandments, this law of love is. We want to live without restraint. You want your kids to live without restraint and a moral compass? Is that what you want? That—that's what they're saying here. We—we we don't want to have a moral compass. We just want people to be their own god. We want people to live for themselves and we want self to be on the throne. We don't want God's king to be on the throne. We want self to be on the throne. So self can do whatever self wants to do. Let me tell you what self does. Self destroys self. Sin destroys self. And so if we live in a world without any restraint whatsoever, then we see the ramifications of that. But the people here from the nations who are plotting, who are the kings that are setting themselves against God, said, we don't want God at all. We don't want your king. We don't want anything to do with your king. And that's what we see in America right this moment, present tense today. People say, we don't want God. Where has that gotten us? We don't want God in our schools. I remember the day when you could pray in school. I remember the day when you could do things that were honorable to the Lord and affirm people in their integrity and you can't do that anymore because you, know, you, you can't do that anymore in the classroom or in the government or the school say prayers here and say prayers there. Listen, it, it, you can when you understand that you represent the one who's on top. Now here's, what, here, here's what's really interesting about the text. So the people are saying, let's get rid of God. Now look at verse four, God says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Look at the text. He who sits in the heavens. This king is a king that's been placed by God's authority. He sits in the heavens. This is not an earthly king that has been voted in by people to rule a land. This is God's king, and he sits in the heavens, and it says he shall laugh. Now, here's what's important. Their plans are laughable, but their rebellion is serious. You don't really want God to laugh, because when God laughs, it's not funny whatsoever. God is a God that's holy. He's righteous. He's just. He's in control of this world, and so you don't want God to laugh, but what happens is God is laughing at the plans of people who are trying to get rid of him. They're trying to get rid of God. They're trying to take him. We don't like the installation of this king, so we're going to protest. We're going to do everything we can. But here's what he says. He sits in the heavens in a position just like those kings who set themselves in a permanent, concrete position. Here's the news. God sits in a permanent, concrete position, and he shall not be moved. God is immovable. He is unshakable. He sits in the heavens. If you go into Ephesians, you can take this because we have the totality of the word of God today. In Ephesians, Paul actually says, we're seated in the heavens with him. So if he's sitting and he's laughing, and I'm in a position of sitting with him because I am in a relationship with him, so I'm, I'm, in this, I'm on this earth because Christ is in me, but positionally, that's practically, positionally, I'm with him in heaven in a position of rest. So it's, a, it's mind-blowing to think about this, that he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. So what's important here is that we understand God's not laughing at anybody. He's laughing at the plans of the people who are trying to overthrow him. And that is a laughable thing. The rebellion is not laughable whatsoever. And one of the beautiful things, because God is on top, because he is sovereign, there is no intelligence briefing. There is nobody going to sweep him to the side and say, we got to put you in this bunker over here. God is completely in control. He doesn't need anybody to brief him on anything. He knows everything. He knows everyone. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro. He's totally in charge. So he sits in the heaven. With all this chaos that's going on, it says he sits in the heavens and laughs. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath. You know, God has a way of saying something without having to say it. He's got a way of speaking without having to speak. If you think about that, I think he's trying to say something to us today. I think he's trying to say something to us today that he's in control. He shall speak to them. doesn't mean he's going to speak to the rebel and those that are rebelling, but he's speaking by these cataclysmic events that are taking place. And the wrath that is to come for those that choose to live for themselves, to reject the laws of God and the commandments of God, to reject God's King, Jesus, they they will experience the wrath. But those who embrace him will find mercy and grace and forgiveness. And so that's what he's talking about here. Now look at verse 6. Verse 6 says this, Yet I have set my king, okay, the, the, the world, the peoples that are raging and the countries and the nations that are raging, they said they've set their king. God says, no, I've, I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion. 28 times in the book of Psalm, Psalms, it talks about God being on the throne in the holy hill of Zion. Now, you see the Jews uh, occupy that today, the Arabs uh, will will at, at one point, and, and you see so many different people, but the it, the the. the picture of this word here, yet I have set my king is in the past tense, which means there's finality and completeness. When all this rebellion is over, when all this prophecy is fulfilled, my king is going to be setting on the holy hill of Zion. It was prophesied before the foundation of the world and my king is set, okay? So he's the king of heaven, he's the king of earth, but he will eventually set up residence on the holy hill of Zion. And here's what he says, I will declare the decree. This is verse 7. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. God's talking about his son, all right, which is obviously the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He says, today I have begotten you. And you can see that in other places in Scripture. Let me just give them to you quickly we won't turn there. Hebrews 1:5 talks about the crucifixion of the Son. Acts 13:31 and 32 uses this same language and talks about the resurrection of the Son, and then Philippians 1:9 through 11 talks about the exaltation of the Son. So what you have here is in this passage of Scripture in Psalm chapter 2, this prophecy, this messianic psalm, God is installing his king, which is Jesus, and he says, you are my son. This is my son we're talking about here. So in the Old Testament, you would know that a prophet would speak on behalf of God, uh, a priest would serve on behalf of God and a king would rule on behalf of God but God saying my son is prophet priest, and he's king. He is the anointed one, he is the enthroned one, and he is the empowered one. God says, enough talking, people. The people have talked in the first few verses of this chapter of Psalm chapter 2. God says, now it's my turn to speak, and I want to speak about my son, who I'm installing as the king over the universe, and my son has a plan, and his plan is to be crucified, to be buried and raised on the third day. He's the anointed one, the enthroned one, one, the empowered one. So when someone says, do you have the anointing of God? Here's the answer. Yes, I do. Why? Because the anointed one lives in me. Every one of us are anointed because Jesus Christ is the anointed one. He is the anointed one. He is the empowered one. He is living in me. So I have the anointed one, the enthroned one, the empowered one, the one who's on top of the world, who is sitting on top of this world. is sitting in me in the power of the Holy Spirit. God himself is in me. God is in you if you've trusted Jesus Christ. Christ in you. Christ in me. This king, this enthroned one, this one that the people rejected, I have not rejected. I have received him, and I know the power of God in my life. I've seen God do things in my life that I could never do on my best day, and I know when he does it, I turn and give him all praise and all glory because he has empowered me to do it, and it's by his grace that I can do it, and by his grace that you and I can be in partnership together in ministry. But this is God's son, and God's son lives in me because he is prophet, priest, and king. He has done everything that he needed to do. And so in this psalm that's messianic, the fulfillment of it is God's king has come. It's already, He's already here. But the people say, I don't want this king. We don't want your king. We don't want your king. Picket, all this protest kind of stuff. That's fine. You can make your own choice whether you want this king. But I'm telling you, the best decision I ever made in my life is when Christ came into me, forgave me of my sin, took me on a road from hell and put me on a road to heaven. And on my way to heaven, I've got heaven in me because of grace, because of mercy, because I learned to bow before him, surrender to him. The people didn't want this king. They're still trying to get rid of this king. But look at God. Look what he does here. Verse 8, he says, ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So this is God's king, all right? His sonship is significant because of the resurrection. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. So he's talking about his sonship is significant. His sovereignty is significant because it talks about here, to to the ends of the earth. Everything belongs to him. Everything belongs to him. I've given him all things. And his his severity of punishment is very significant. Because he says here, and the ends of the earth for your possession. But if you choose not to embrace this king, look at verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. See, you can either have a shepherd, the king, Jesus, who will shepherd you with a rod, lead you, guide you. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me by still waters. He leads me into righteousness for his name. All these things, he leads, he leads. So you can have a shepherd who leads you with a rod. Or you, if you reject what Jesus Christ has done for you, that rod will break you. Life will break you. But God will break you ultimately. He'll break you because he's given you an opportunity. And so you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Either you can be in front of him and with him because of what he's done with his shed blood. Or you can be behind him and feel the fury and the wrath of God. Some of you are old enough in here to remember what it's like to be disciplined with a switch. Right? When you did, when you sinned, when you rebelled, some of your parents said, "Go get your own switch." So you went out to the willow tree, and you began to measure things up, and you came back with something that was too small. They 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 sent you back out because that's not that's not going to do the job. And then you try to find this little wiggly willow tree and, and some other little trees. So finally, here's the bad thing about it you're, you're rebelling, you're getting punished, but you're actually participating in your punishment by going to get your own switch and bring it in and say, and then say, now go ahead. You're part of your own destruction, you're participating in that. You're actually going to get the rod of iron, which is the destruction, which is the, uh, you know, which is the part of it that's going to really hurt. So you're participating in your own destruction. But there will be a day for those that reject and revolt against the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be a day. They won't choose their own switch. He'll choose the switch. And they'll be separated from all eternity from him, all because they chose to reject this king that God installed. His name is Jesus. And so... You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. You know what you have to do to break a potter's vessel? Some people say, well, God, God would just have to throw it or he'd have to throw it down. No, here's what he does. He just drops it and it breaks. But, you know, there's a picture of pottery for those of us who understand this picture of it, that those of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ by grace, that we know that we're, Jeremiah talks about, we're uh in the potter's hand. He, he is the one who is in charge of putting us on the potter's wheel, and he is molding and making us into what he wants us to be. So we understand this picture of destruction. You can drop the potter's vessel and it break, but God begins, to those of us that put our faith and trust in him, he begins to put us on the wheel, and he turns that wheel, and he makes us into what he wants to make us into. And every artist already knows what the picture is and the outcome before they ever start, and our God is no different. He knows exactly what he's going to do. He knows exactly what he's going to do with our lives. So we just get on the potter's wheel, and then we have the battle of the wills. Lord, is it going to be my way or is it going to be your way? But if you just yield and surrender and stay on the potter's wheel, he'll make you into the person that he wants you to be. And it can be painful sometimes, but there's no growth without some pain and some discipline. So the idea is here, he says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So there'll come a day when God will make the score right. And those who have rejected him, those who have said, we don't want this king, God will let you go to the wrath of your abandonment. He says, listen, in Romans one, he says, you can have your own way. You know, I'm not gonna whip you into submission. You can have your own way. You can go your own way with sin. You can do what you want to do, but it's apart from me. But here's what I love about this Psalm. There's all this about judgment, rejection and then here's what he says look at the graciousness of our god in verse 10 now therefore be wise O kings be instructed you judges of the earth serve the lord with fear and rejoice with trembling do you see what god's doing there It's the most amazing thing. He's given people an opportunity who have rejected him, who are protesting him, who are saying, we don't like the coronation of this new king. He's telling them, he's given them an opportunity because of mercy and grace and how loving kindness that he demonstrates to people. He's saying, hey, listen, I want to be gracious to you. Be wise. Use wisdom, O kings. Don't see what you see that's in front of you. See a bigger picture. Be wise. Make a decision. All you have to do, here's what he says, be wise. Wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. You can turn from serving yourself and rejecting me and and keeping your own agenda, and you can begin to serve the Lord, serve the Lord with fear. So the idea is you can change your course, you can change your attitude about me right now. All you have to do is bow before me, that's it. Serve the Lord, kings, Oh, kings, I want to be gracious to you. I don't want to drop you like a piece of pottery. I don't want to see you destroyed. But I want to give you an opportunity to serve the king who's on top, who's on the throne. You can experience all the grace you need by serving me. Serve the Lord. It means to come to the Lord with humility. That's what it means, to come to the Lord with humility. You come to the Lord to a position of place in your life where you say, I want to serve the Lord with humility. If the Lord just wants me to serve in any capacity, I'm gonna serve in humility. Humility means you don't look at me, you look at me and then you look at him. You don't see me, you see him. I'm just a reflection of him. So humility doesn't say I'm gonna serve the Lord because I want you to see me serving. I want you to see me out front. I want you to see me in the parking lot. I want you to see me as a greeter. I want you to see me as a teacher. See, that's the wrong kind of attitude. What God wants to do is hide you so he can be seen, so you can serve the Lord with fear. Serving him with fear in this text doesn't mean running from him. It means running to him. Do you get that? Fear is not running away from God. Fear is running to God. Serve the Lord with fear. I have a reverence. I have an awe. I have a respect for him. When I see somebody in the military, when I'm shopping or in the, Uh, eating out or whatever, which I haven't done for two and a half years. I have an automatic respect and honor. And I stop, and I'm kind of in awe. And I'll see people go over and speak a word of encouragement and truth to people who have served our country. And it's, it's just like it's built into us that we stop and we give honor and reverence to those who are serving. But listen. We're talking about the king of kings here. We're talking about serving the Lord with fear. So when I think about fear, I think about a trembling fear that one day I will stand before God and he will know the attitudes and actions of my heart and I will give an account for every idle word and I want to serve the Lord with fear. I want you to see me, but I want you to see him in me. That's all. I want him to teach. I don't want to teach. I'm teaching now, but I'm teaching as I am being taught by him. I am a reflection of him. He is teaching me. I am teaching you. This is the power of God, the anointed one, the enthroned one, the empowered one coming through me. So when I serve the Lord with fear, I'm not serving so that I can get recognition. One of the ways that you know that you have a spiritual gift is when someone doesn't recognize that gift in you, you don't quit and you don't get unbent and all that kind of stuff because you're not serving for the applause of people. You're serving for the applause of of God. God's the one who gave me the gift. God's the one who has gifted you. So if I'm gonna serve the Lord with fear, I'm not running away from him. I'm actually embracing who he is and I'm running to him. Serve the Lord, look at the text, with fear. It's changing my attitude. It's changing my ways. It's changing the way I deliver the gift of God through me. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That's humble, grateful adoration for the king who installed his son, who had a plan to save me before the foundation of the world and I am rejoicing with trembling even as I'm teaching because I know that God's given me the gift of teaching but it's a gift that he has given me and it's a grace gift everything that God has ever given me is by grace so I want to hold it loosely to honor him and to say Jesus you just do through me what you want to do I will serve the Lord with fear and trembling and I will rejoice because that power comes in me and it comes in you when we have the right perspective about serving i get nervous at a church this size it's just me i I buy milk at the same place you do so turn your halo a little bit down i get nervous when we open up there's nothing wrong with this hey everybody let's serve well wait a minute you want surrendered people to serve you just don't want anybody serving we open up a classroom of kids, say, we got, an empty, we got a classroom here with 30 kids. We need a teacher. Somebody's going to respond to that by guilt, not by grace. And God help us if they do, because the kids will know it, and they'll know it over time that God didn't call them. That was a prestige moment for them to step in and be seen. Listen, people that serve, they serve with humility. They do it with a quiet spirit. They just serve. They're faithful. You can count on them. They're here. They do what they do. They're called by God. They don't worship here on Sunday and have another lifestyle Monday through Saturday. They understand that worship is Monday through Saturday, and we culminate together on Sunday morning. We're just singing out of the praise and the overflow of what God's already done in our life because we're continuing to serve the Lord with fear and trembling everywhere we go. Everywhere we go, we serve the Lord. We don't serve the Lord at church and then cut it off and say, okay, that's it. Cut the spigot off. We don't serve anymore. No, service is a flow that you get in by the power of God. So here's what the psalmist says. He's gracious. God is gracious. Hey, you can turn from your ways of destruction, and you can serve the Lord with fear. I think I may have used this illustration, but Venus Williams, the girl is good at tennis. Her serve... 135 miles an hour she can be down in a match and she can be out of it and the commentators have already counted it done she's lost because of the power of her serve I've seen her come back multiple times some of us need to come back because of the power of our serve that our God has given us. And we can come back from a setback. Maybe you were hurt. Maybe you were wounded. Maybe someone didn't affirm you in your service. That's not the role for us to affirm you in your service. You just be affirmed by the Lord. Yes, we can exhort you. Yes, we can encourage you. That's a wonderful thing as God gives us that gift. But if you bail because you didn't get pats on the back, you're serving for the wrong reason. You will stand before God with the gifts that he's given you, and he will say, why did you waste what I gave you? Serve the Lord with fear and trembling. Serve him, love him, honor him. Look at the text. We're coming home. Here's what it says. Kiss the son. You know what that means? It's a sign of affection. It's a sign of surrender. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but for a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. Kiss the son. I've used this illustration, I know I have on a Sunday morning. But when my wife kisses me, I don't wipe it off. You can see the red mark. And I've had little old ladies, and some of them are in here tonight, come up and go, you you got something, leave it. You know why? That kiss represents affection and love and adoration for me from my wife. And you just leave it on all the time. Because it's a reminder to me of how much she loves me. But I'm going to tell you what. It doesn't compare when you think about the kiss of the son, the embrace, the love that God has for you. Kiss the son lest he be angry. In other words, hey, it's a kiss of surrender. It's a kiss of bowing down. And blessed are those, we'll finish with this, blessed are those who put their trust in him. You may have the word refuge there. It's the same meaning. It doesn't say it's not a refuge from him. It's a refuge in him. It's a refuge in him. So the blessedness comes, the blessing comes for those who put their trust in him. Not those who say, get rid of the king, but those who embrace the kiss of the son and say, Lord, do whatever you want to do in my life. I pray that you could be encouraged to serve the Lord with fear and with trembling. I, just like Matt Carter, Hate crowds. He said it in a different way. I'm saying it this way. Neither one of us, we always feel butterflies. Uh, every time we get up, we're, we're, we're nervous. If I get up and I don't sense some nervousness, I'm really gonna be concerned about me. Because you know what that means? I'm trusting in myself. But I have tr- fear and trembling when I teach because I know the one that I'm representing. I know that I'll give an account. Those who shepherd the flock of God will give an account for the sheep. Those that we shepherded with the word of God will give an account. And so this is a pretty high calling here. So the understanding here as he closes this psalm is blessed are those who who find their refuge in him, who put their trust in him. So you can abandon everything you are and just put your trust in him. And listen to me. This is so important. Use whatever gifts God has given you to his glory and for his good, not for somebody else. It's, it, the gift is for the benefit of somebody else. But if you're not careful, you're going to be using your gifts to try to bless people, and you're going to think you have the power to bless people. But watch this. God blesses you And he puts the blessing on you, the anointing on you. And when that anointing goes out of you and you use your gift and it hits somebody else and splashes on them, it already has his blessing on it because it's anointed by him and it's coming from from him just through you. You're just a conduit. You and I are just a conduit through which he flows his power and his grace. That's what service and ministry is. That's all it is. So I want to encourage you to do that. I'll close with this. we're just going to close in prayer. We're so far over. We're just going to close. I'll save that illustration for my next series. That'll work. But hey, guys, we love you here at Sagemont. But I hope you're encouraged and challenged. Man, we got an opportunity as the nations rage to just be what God wants us to be. And here's here's what I love. There's no pressure on me or you to make ministry happen because we don't have that much power. All... It comes, to, it comes from him, it comes to us, and it flows through us. My prayer is that we could just get out of the way and watch God do amazing things through our life.